1: History is full of daring escapes and near-misses. One of the most famous involved the 1944 mass escape of Allied soldiers from a German POW camp. The story eventually became the subject of a book by one of the Royal Australian Air Force pilots imprisoned there. It was then adapted into a film in 1963 starring Steve McQueen and Richard Attenborough. The Great Escape is remembered today as a cinema classic. A similar event occurred 80 years prior during the Civil War. Hundreds of Union officers were being held at Libby Prison in Virginia, a Confederate prison where captives faced dismal living conditions. There wasn't enough food, disease ran rampant, and many men were crammed into cells shoulder to shoulder. The prisoners dug a tunnel for months, carving through the bricks behind the kitchen stove. On February 9th, they got their chance. 109 Union prisoners of war crawled dozens of feet through the darkness, rats scurrying around them until they were able to breathe the fresh air of freedom. Though almost 50 were caught in the following days, about 60 made it back to Union lines, many by Valentine's Day. But there is another historical great escape, one that has eluded the publishing world and Hollywood. It's a tale of deception, cunning, and bravery, and it occurred while the enemy watched the whole thing happen in front of him. In 1264, Lord Edward I of England faced off against Simon de Montfort de Montfort had been an advisor to Edward's father, King Henry III, but the two grew apart over Montfort's displeasure over Henry's ruling style. You see, Henry was a dictator who often went against the wishes of his barons, while Montfort preferred a more limited form of government, one where a monarch was kept in check by elected officials and barons. Simon de Montfort united the other barons and their armies against Henry's and Edward's forces. The two sides confronted each other in the town of Lewis in Sussex. Henry's army was almost double the size of Montfort's. A truce was attempted, but the king was confident that he could overpower his former advisor with ease. With the formalities out of the way, Montfort ordered his forces to split into teams of four in order to attack from different sides. They struck at dawn. Edward managed to push one section of the baronial army into a neighboring town, but his efforts left his father's men wide open to an attack from the enemy. Simon de Montfort gained the upper hand and was able to overwhelm the king's forces. His army killed many royalist soldiers, while the others fled. Some were taken as prisoners. With the royalists defeated, Simon had a few friars deliver a message to the king. The time had come for peace. He would release all of the prisoners if Henry and Edward surrendered themselves. He didn't want to fight anyone. He only wanted what was best for England. And Prince Edward agreed. He gave up himself as requested. And though he was technically Simon's prisoner, he was afforded certain luxuries. For example, the prince often went out to ride horses with the few guards nearby to make sure that he didn't escape. Well, one day, Simon was gifted a horse from a nobleman who had come to visit. It was strong and fast, the kind of horse that might serve well in battle. And Simon instructed one of his servants to take it along whenever Edward went on his rides so as to catch him if he tried to flee. Edward caught a glimpse of the powerful creature and he got an idea. He challenged the guards to a race. Each guard, one by one, took off after the prince on horseback before returning with him back to the starting point after all the guards had raced him, Simon de Montfort's new horse was brought out last. Edward took the reins and mounted it himself, waving goodbye as he bolted away. The guards took off after him. Unfortunately, Edward had already pulled one over on them. In racing their horses earlier, he had exhausted them. The animals were too tired to give chase, and so the prince got away. A few months later, Edward met up with Simon de Montfort again. Things didn't go so well for Simon this time. His army was defeated in battle, and he was killed by a lance through the neck. Several years later, Edward ascended to the throne, all because his captor had loosened the reins and allowed him to make hay. This episode is sponsored by Intuit. and MailChimp. Whether you're trying to manage your money or trying to run a business, Intuit gives you the confidence to take control of your finances so you can live your best life. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T to start living yours. Let's get into it. When Tom Moore Jr. died at the age of 98, the people of McLean County, Texas remembered him for the colorful life he'd led. He had practiced law for nearly 70 years and showed up at the law firm every day well into his 90s. Those who met him said that he was compassionate, highly intelligent, and had a keen sense of humor. Because of his advanced age, judges allowed him, and only him, to appear in court without a tie. He'd earned the right, the judges said, although Moore still wore a tie if a jury was present. He had strong work ethics, too. He'd worked his way up in life, starting at his father's lumber yard, where he continued to work while putting himself through college at Baylor University. He served in the Army from 1943 to 46, and then from 1952 to 58, he worked as the county's district attorney during the early days of television. In fact, he made the news when he served as the prosecutor for the first televised criminal trial case in the U.S. in 1955. The case was a national sensation. The local news reported that more women tuned into the trial during the afternoon than their favorite soap operas. Moore won the case, by the way. The accused murderer, Harry Washburn, was found guilty. In 1967, Moore was elected to the Texas House of Representatives, where he served until 1973. He became part of a group labeled the Dirty Thirty. When he and others set aside party loyalty to oust their speaker, Gus Mucher, who was involved in a stock fraud scandal, Moore said that he and the others considered themselves reformers, ridding their party of corruption. Moore returned to practicing law after that and mentored other attorneys. They recall his strong ethics and advice. If it smells, he told them, don't do it. But when most people retired, Moore kept going. In his later years, he took part in Meals on Wheels for Aging Citizens, although by this time he was older than most of the recipients. And when some of his legal clients couldn't pay, Moore just worked for free. He remained social too, playing cards with his friends for over 40 years, rarely missing a night. But none of those accomplishments are what people remember about Tom Moore. From the serious to the mundane, writing and voting on legislation was part of Moore's and his fellow representatives' duties in the late 60s and early 70s. And it wasn't uncommon to pass resolutions to honor citizens for their hard work or their social contributions. Such was the case when Moore presented a resolution to the House of Representatives in 1971. He wrote that his nominee had served the country, state, and community with dedication and devotion. Moore also was quick to point out that the state of Massachusetts had already officially recognized the nominee's methods, however unconventional they might have been, in population control and applied psychology. Sure, the facts and events surrounding the nominee's service were vague, and Moore had intentionally and carefully worded the resolution. Still, the House voted unanimously in favor of it. Now, I'm sure that a lot of things ran through Moore's mind by then. Although slightly horrified, he also wasn't surprised. In a strange sort of way, he also found it amusing, and could barely contain his laughter. You see, he'd proven a point. That no one he worked with actually read the resolutions they voted on, and that they hadn't for a very long time. And thanks to Moore's experiment, they literally had no idea who they had just honored for their work on population control. Within minutes of approval, he withdrew his proposal. And everyone appeared stunned that he would pull the resolution before the ink had even dried, and so they waited for an explanation. Now, back then, he still wore a tie to work, and he might have tugged at it just a little before reminding them of the date, April 1st. And his resolution had been part prank, part test, to see if these professional politicians actually paid attention to the job that they had been elected to perform. Considering the results of the vote, it was clear that they most certainly did not because Moore's carefully reworded proposal was designed to honor a man named Albert DeSalvo, otherwise known as the famous serial killer from Massachusetts, the Boston Strangler. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey.